Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Lifestyle of the Gospel, with a message titled Principles of Godly Freedom, Part 1. So turning your Bibles to Romans 14, 13 to 19, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Many people think that freedom is the license to do whatever a person wants. You know, it's surprising for some to hear that the practice of freedom takes discipline. I would add that in order to be truly free, it takes a commitment to both truth and wisdom. But it also takes persistence, a kind of passionate commitment not to allow oneself to become enslaved, either by the lower nature or by philosophical systems designed to enslave. You know, freedom is not something that simply comes by doing what you want. I mean, most often, the undisciplined, unfocused life ends up in horrible bondage. Let me give you an example. If you were to sit at the keys of a piano and be told, you have the freedom to play anything you want, you'll soon find out how little freedom you actually have. You can, of course, sit down and randomly play any note, but it will be noise. Or you might learn very quickly how to play something elementary like, let's say, chopsticks, but you'll quickly become bored. It's not until someone plays Bach that you'll realize how limited your freedom has been. You soon find that you have no freedom at all to produce beauty and timeless art. See, that kind of freedom is not easily attained, but but it can be attained. See, until the will is harnessed by training and discipline, repetition, the sacrifice of other things that we'd also have liked to have done, but we're willing to lay them aside. Well, you see what I'm saying? True, worthwhile freedom is not careless living. It's quite the opposite. Now, as we've been studying Romans chapter 14, one of the great freedoms that has been given to Christians is the freedom from dietary restrictions and the freedom from observing Sabbath in the uniquely Jewish way. Jesus pronounced all foods clean, and the day of rest has been transformed to the Lord's Day in the New Testament. And by the way, if you're wondering how it's possible for the New Testament to simply do away with some things that were commanded in the Old Testament, well, the explanation is, on the one hand, quite simple. I guess, on the other hand, it's a bit complex as well. See, the Old Testament law has a number of things that make it difficult for the modern reader to understand. I mean, some laws, like the laws of sacrifice, well, they were given to prepare the world for the understanding of the final and ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. I mean, once Christ died on the cross, the need for sacrifice and offering, well, they came to an end. Now, now of course, we still study the Old Testament sacrificial system because, well, it continues to give us insight into the holiness of God, into the need for worship, the truth that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, stuff like that. But the sacrificial system itself is now obsolete, having served its intended purpose. Now, other parts of the law are specifically targeted for Israel only. Now, some of those laws are the, the kosher food laws. Others are clothing laws, making the Jews unique in the clothing that they wore. And there were laws regarding circumcision and and a host of other issues as well. Now, those laws were deliberately designed to separate the Jewish people from the peoples of the world. This was God's design to keep Israel from idolatry 
and other ungodly practices, but they were also designed so that God could uniquely teach Israel the lessons that they needed to learn and we needed to learn from them. So, for instance, the Jewish experience of the Babylonian captivity taught the Jews some unique lessons. They found out how separate they actually were from all the peoples on earth. They found out how horrible idolatry was. They found out that God rules over Babylon, not just Israel. See, I'm saying that God was uniquely teaching Israel, and he designed some laws from the beginning to make sure that Israel remained a unique nation. But there were other laws that were intended to be universal to all people. The Ten Commandments are an excellent example of that. Those laws demonstrate God's righteous demands for the whole human race. Now, when the New Testament proclaims that in Jesus, the gospel is to be proclaimed to all the world, well, it actually creates a crisis. Which laws refer to which? And that's why, as you'll remember, as recorded in Acts chapter 10, Peter sees a vision of a sheet descending from heaven, that is, from God himself. And on that sheet are all kinds of animals, and Peter instantly, as a good Jew, recognized that all those animals are unclean. And the voice of God is heard. Take Peter, kill, and eat. And of course, he's shocked. But we know that this is the end of kosher foods, and it means that the gospel can now go to all the world, to the Gentiles as well. Well, if you're still confused as to which Old Testament laws are applicable to us and which are not, I have a very good and easy, understandable solution. The New Testament is a prophetic revelation from God, and it will help you to understand which is which, which laws are intended as universal and which only apply to Israel. The New Testament, study it, and it will simplify that process. But here's what I'm driving at. I want you to imagine the news that came to the early church and especially to the Jewish followers of Jesus. So many of those Old Testament laws, now that Christ had come, were reduced to a matter of personal conviction. You have the freedom, yeah, the freedom to make choices for yourself on these matters. And that was especially true regarding circumcision and kosher foods. Now, for us today, you know, we take the the freedom of conscience on these things for granted, and so it doesn't seem like a lot. But it was liberating news in the ancient world. I mean, Paul would say, and here I'm quoting Colossians 2, verse 16, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or new moon, or a Sabbath. Christians are freed from certain aspects of the law which deal with ceremony or those things that were meant for the national life of Israel only. We're freed from the Jewish practice of Sabbath, although we are commanded to make one day of the week a day of rest and worship called the Lord's Day. You know, I occasionally used to get letters from a Seventh-day Adventist gentleman, and he wanted me to limit my freedom. And actually, I think he was trying to convert me to Adventism, but I would not be bound. You see, Colossians 2.16 counsels me to let no one judge me regarding this. We're free from those people who want us to only eat certain foods. We can eat any food. And those who want to put dietary restrictions on us are wrong. Now, we may want to restrict that freedom somewhat, lest you're you know, eating bacon and eggs for breakfast and pizza for lunch and hamburgers and fries for supper with plenty of snacks added in. I, for one constantly fight to keep my weight in check. And so 
I purposely limit my freedom. And in some things, you should as well, at least if you want to have room to still get your stomach behind the wheel of your car. It's a good idea. But the freedom spoken of here is the freedom to serve God without adhering to certain laws. In today's terms, you're free in such matters that include clothing styles, hairstyles, jewelry, kind of car you drive, kind of house you live in, whether you have a tattoo. I mean, the list goes on and on. And by the way, I was once confronted by a mother who told me to lecture her daughter about the tattoo that she wanted to have from Old Testament passages. I told the mom that while her daughter was under her roof and under her authority, she was commanded by God to obey her mother and father. But once she moved out, obedience is replaced by honor. The matter of a tattoo is going to become her personal choice. There is no biblical command regarding this matter. It's called freedom, the freedom to choose. Now, obviously, we're not free to disobey the moral law. Some people don't understand that. They, they have no moral compass. You know, some time ago, I remember a certain pastor. He was proclaiming his freedom by, by cussing while in the pulpit. Now, that's, that's an outrage. God had given him no such freedom, and to act like that is to violate the command of God. But that's not what we're speaking about here in Romans 14. We're, we're speaking of matters of moral indifference. We're speaking about some matters that relate to cultural practices. I still remember with a great deal of joy one Sunday after having preached and then prayed with people and then visited a few more, I was ready to go home. I went into a change room in the church. I got into my motorcycle clothing. I was ready for a joyous ride home. I was approached by a woman who told me quite sternly that in her culture, it was a sin for a pastor to ride a motorcycle. And I smiled and I said, I was so glad that Christ had set me free from morally indifferent matters. But just like my first piano example, all that freedom will not help you live well until it's expressed within the context of godliness. There is a freedom that can quickly degenerate into a cavalier, devil-may-care attitude in which we don't take the time to ask, how am I using my freedom? Is this use of freedom, that is, is it godly? Or is this use of a freedom that is divorced from the life of Christ? And here's the principle. No Christian simply acts freely. Everything we do must be done unto the Lord. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. What has been accomplished is a result of people like you listening right now who share our hearts for this mission. In particular, those who have chosen to join us in ministry as monthly partners. As we begin a new year, perhaps becoming an 1119 monthly partner might be something you'd consider. Your investment in this ministry assures that people of all ages and stages of life have opportunity to discover more about a new life in Christ through the study of God's Word. Your partnership in 2022 will provide the resources to sustain and expand the reach of Bible teaching across Canada and beyond. To learn more about the 1119 Monthly Partnership Program, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call us at 1-800-663-2425. reading Romans 14, 13 to 19. 
Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let me put this passage into its proper context. We've learned of a problem that had developed in the Roman church. Both Jews and Gentiles had found faith in Christ together, but even though they were one in Christ, they still had vastly different practices, especially those surrounding the Sabbath, the Jewish feasts, and the food they ate. Paul makes the point that as long as Jews did not adhere to these practices as an expression of legalism, but continued to hope in Christ alone for salvation, well, in that case, they were given the freedom to continue on in these deeply meaningful and historic Jewish practices. Furthermore, regardless of how they worked these matters out, both sides were prevented from judging one another. But in our passage today, we found out that this is not the last word on the matter of freedom. Look again at the first part of verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. See, in this passage, Paul calls for believers to willingly limit their freedom out of love for others. Now, if we're not careful, you might say, I, I know what Paul means here. He means, if anything I do offends my brother, I'm just not going to do it. But let me ask you several questions. Is that what Jesus did? And the answer must be, well, no. For instance, think of how Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath and how offensive that was to the Pharisees. So, did he stop and only heal from, let's say, Sunday to Friday? Well, no, he didn't, in spite of the fact that it offended all sorts of people. And how about Paul? Did he stop exercising his freedom when people were offended? Well, sometimes he did, but sometimes he didn't. So, for instance, for those who were insisting on circumcision, he simply says, I wish they would go all the way and emasculate themselves. Well, that's, that's in Galatians 5 verse 12, and that is pretty abrasive language. Here's what I'm getting at. If I limit my freedom every time someone has an objection, I'm soon going to develop an uncontrollable twitch and be constantly apologizing. I mean, for instance, Let's say someone says, well, I'm offended that we use drums in worship. So, well, we don't want to offend that brother or sister, so out go the drums. Well, what we might not know is that it wasn't that long ago when Christians were offended because of the organ. It was a secular instrument, and yet it had been allowed into the Christian church. And speaking of the offensive music, many were offended when William Booth brought brass instruments into Christian worship or when Martin Luther used dance hall style of music and incorporated that into the hymns of the church. Remember, Luther asked, why should the devil have all the good music? But it goes further. Someone else feels very strongly that we should only use the King James version of the Bible, so out go our ESVs or our NIVs or whatever have you. And someone else thinks we should only worship on Saturday, so 
There go our Sunday services. And another person thinks the pastor should wear a tie, like in the olden days. And, and out comes the tie, along with the appropriate suit and the shoes and the socks and the haircut that goes with it. I hope you get the picture. Taken at face value, this principle is unworkable, and Paul himself didn't do it. Furthermore, if you take this idea never to offend another far enough, it would soon mean that we're all in bondage just waiting for the next thing that offends someone. Freedom would be gone in favor of a people who are constantly subject to the judgments and prejudices of others. So what does the text really say? And to put it practically, should I limit my freedom and when should I limit my freedom? So let's read the first three verses of our text again. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ has died. I want you to notice three important words. The first is in verse 13. It's the word stumbling block. The image is of a stone left in the road. So we imagine a blind person walking a road or imagine a scenario when it's dark and you're running along that road. And the idea is that the stone has been left there. And would you notice that the stone is not left out of neglect. It's been put there purposefully. I decide to put a stumbling block before someone and it causes them to fall. The second is the word hindrance. The Greek word here is the word scandalon, from which we get our English word scandal. If I scandalize someone, I'm intentionally attempting to hurt him or her. Here's the image of a person flagrantly using their freedom to hurt. The third is found in verse 15. It's the word destroy. See, that word is an extremely strong word, and it speaks about spiritual ruin. Don't cause what you do to cause spiritual ruin. Now, we will miss what Paul is getting at if we think this is a careless act. Paul is speaking about a purposeful act designed to bring spiritual injury. Now, to be clear, Paul is not suggesting that you or I, by our actions, can damn someone to an eternity of torment. Salvation from damnation includes, among other things, God's election and his grace. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And in John 6, 39, Jesus says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but to raise it up on the last day. And Acts 13 verse 48 says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Now note this, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So we're not saying that someone appointed by God to eternal life can be unappointed because of bad behavior. What then is Paul saying? Paul is saying this, were it not for God's grace, you would destroy a brother by the use of your freedom. We can use our freedom in such a way that would drive people away from Christ and into the arms of damnation if we could. So then, is there a principle from this teaching, a principle that we can apply today? Well, I think there is. See, each of us who are in Christ must determine to protect the genuine faith of those who are weak. See, please notice, there's a difference between an opinionated brother and a weak brother. An opinionated brother has what I call the three Ps. 
They're proud, passionate, and pugilistic. They're, they're always looking for a fight, and they're constantly looking to put someone in his or her place. In contrast, a weak brother has what I call the three uns. They're uncertain, easily unsettled, and quickly undermined. They're weak, not opinionated. Paul has nothing to say about limiting our freedom for the opinionated, those who are powerful. Rather, he means don't lay a trap for someone who's not strong in the faith. And Paul is making it clear that some freedom destroys the shaky, unsteady faith of the weak or the new believer. In that case, loving freedom restricts itself. So imagine a Jewish brother new to the faith. Are you going to have that person over and his family for bacon and eggs? No, that would hinder him. Want a contemporary example? Imagine you find out that drinking a bit of wine is not forbidden. Well, you've just won an alcoholic to faith. Do you invite him or her over for wine and cheese? Never! And there are countless examples of this. If a Muslim comes to faith in Christ, are you going to have him over for pork? Never! You know, I once had a friend who had very excellent prospects to make it to the NHL. And when he came to faith, he hung up his hockey skates because those skates were directly associated with a former immoral way of life. When he came to Christ, it was difficult for him to get near hockey. See, I would never have invited him to come join us for a church hockey league. And that's the first principle of godly freedom. Mature believers become aware of what genuinely harms new believers, and they restrict their freedom to build up and not to destroy. John, as we close up today, I think it's really important to make a distinction here or or a definition or a clarification. When we talk about the weak, who are we really talking about? Yeah, the weak brother, you know, as I've said, is the person who would genuinely be harmed by the exercise of our freedom. It might cause them to desert the faith. So we have to be so careful never to allow our freedom to actually set a person on a, you know, a, a dangerous path away from the gospel. So that's why I've used some of the examples that I have had. And I think there are some rules around that. You know, whatever the culture that we're in, we ought to be very careful that we act in such a way that, you know, we understand where Christian freedom lies, but it certainly must not lie in areas that that harm those who are new believers or uncertain ones. Thanks, John. Join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Newfeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video with Dr. John, but also learn more about our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust 
is available to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.